God, we are so hungry to hear from you, to be fed by you. Lord, we believe that your word is alive, it is active, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. And Lord, we have a lot of things in our lives and our hearts that need to be pierced. So God, I pray that you would conduct that mysterious and sovereign conversation between our hearts, your spirit, and your word. God, make the truth plain, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before Walt Disney created Mickey Mouse and Disney World, he was actually fired by a newspaper editor for, I quote, lacking imagination and having no good ideas. Oprah Winfrey was fired by a local television station because she was, quote, unfit for television. Thomas Edison was told by his teachers that he was, quote, too stupid to learn anything and failed 10,000 times before inventing the light bulb. Steven Spielberg was rejected by numerous cinematic arts schools. He had to actually sneak into Universal Studios. Now, there are dozens upon dozens of examples of leaders and people of influence and celebrities who are very successful, and yet they had a rock-bottom moment. Like, they had a moment of, of failure in which it seemed like everybody around them deserted them. And as we approach uh, John chapter 6, and we're going to take this section by section over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see that Jesus Christ himself had kind of a rock-bottom moment, if you will, according to worldly standards. And at this moment in Jesus' ministry, it doesn't get any better than this. Like, he's got his highest amount of followers that he's ever going to have. His um, popularity, his acceptance was at an all-time high. We're going to learn here that there are 5,000 men counted, but if it was anything like College Park Fishers, if you include kids, it's probably close to 30,000, maybe 20 to 30,000, that are gathered here that ended up actually following Jesus. And so he goes from 15 to 25,000 people who are following, who are wanting to make him king, and then towards the end of chapter 6, he's going to be left with only 12. It's very interesting to try to discern why that's the case. And it's even more interesting when you consider the fact that that was deliberate by Jesus. Unlike those individuals I read in the beginning, Jesus' rock-bottom moment was planned. This was very intentional. And I find chapter 6 absolutely fascinating because it seems like he goes from this highest of high popularity to the lowest of lows, and yet it's all part of his plan. Chapter 6, if I could sum it up in one phrase, I would put it this way, that the crowd was drawn in by his miracles, and yet they were driven away by his message. And both aspects were deliberate and were intentional. And I want to uncover why that was the case. Why would Jesus drive away 15, 20, 25,000 people? That's what we're going to try to pursue over the next couple of weeks. And I think it begins with understanding the significance of this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. I think this is the key that unlocks the mystery of this chapter. Now, a couple of things about this miracle, and I'm sure if you've been in church for any length of time, you're familiar with this miracle. But this miracle, out of all the miracles of Jesus, is very unique. This miracle has the most eyewitnesses out of any other miracle. This miracle is also the only gospel miracle which is told in its fullness in all four of the Gospels, showing its significance and its importance. But I think the type of miracle is also important. 
This is what uh, theologians would call a creative miracle. It's Jesus basically creating something out of nothing. And if you trace all of the different miracles of Jesus, most of them are restorative. He's restoring sight to the blind. He's helping lame walk. But here, this is creative. We saw a transformative miracle of water into wine earlier, but the fact that this is a creative miracle also will help us understand the significance of this passage. Another, I think, interesting thing about John chapter 6 is that it follows basically the same pattern of John chapter 5, except it's basically on steroids. It's just way more intense. If you look at both chapters, you compare them side by side, they both start with a miracle, except Jesus' miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, involved way more people. Both chapters then follow up the miracle with a discourse about the identity and the deity of Christ, except John 6 is way longer and probably more robust. And then both chapters follow that discourse with rejection and then a desire to kill him. Now, I take that to mean that John is trying to show us something. John's trying to grab our attention and say there's something significant about John chapter 6 because He's, he's intensifying kind of the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. Okay, so we're going to try to uh, understand more of, uh, of this miracle and the significance of this. Before we do, let me just remind you, this is five of seven uh, recorded miracles by John. Remember, he chooses seven because for the Jewish people, seven uh, represented completion or perfection or fulfillment. And so John, by choosing seven, is telling us that Jesus has come And he's come to fulfill and even to replace the old covenant, and he's brought something new. Okay, so now let's let's dive into this great miracle. Let's first look at the setting. Okay, I want to kind of set the scene here uh, of what's going on and look at verse 1 with me. John says that after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, after this, no one's really sure Uh, what that's exactly referring to, nor uh, is anybody exactly sure how much time has passed from chapter 5 to chapter 6. It all depends on on which feast took place in John chapter 5, verse 1. John chapter 5, verse 1, it only tells us that there was a feast of the Jews. It's not very specific. Now, my position is that I believe John chapter 5 was during the Passover feast, and so I believe that 12 months has Uh, has elapsed from chapter 5 to chapter 6, because in chapter 6, verse 4, you'll also see that we're in the time of the Passover. Now, some people believe that John chapter 5 was the Feast of the Tabernacle, and so only six months has elapsed from chapter 5 to chapter 6, but nevertheless, several months has passed by from chapter 5 to chapter 6. The reason why that is important is because Jesus spends about 70% of his ministry in the Galilean area. Okay, now let me show you kind of a map of where we are um, in relation to Jesus' ministry at this point. Um, Jesus has spent what I think is the last year in this Galilean area. Okay, now uh, Capernaum was kind of like his headquarters. This was basically his hometown. And scholars believe that 70% of his ministry was right around here in between chapters 5 and chapter 6. Now, John hardly talks about Jesus' Galilean ministry. He's got another agenda for this gospel. And so we miss quite a lot about what Jesus did around the Sea of Galilee. And yet Jesus has moved because chapter 5, he was probably right here in Jerusalem if this screen went all the way down. He was down south near Jerusalem. But remember, the religious leaders are wanting to kill him. 
And so he spent probably the last year up in his hometown, away from them. And verse 1 tells us that Jesus goes from right around here, the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, to about the southwest side near uh, Tiberias. Now this is significant because as Jesus spends time in the Galilean area, his popularity continues to grow. Over the last 6 to 12 months, he's been teaching, he's been healing, he's been performing miracles, he's been casting out demons, and crowds of people are coming to him, which is what verse 3 uh, or verse 2 tells us. Another reason why there are thousands of people uh, trying to get to Jesus during this time is because it is during the Passover time. All these Jews are trying to go south to get down to Jerusalem where the temple is. They're trying to worship there. That's what they would do for each of the feasts. And so where Jesus is at this point is the main and the major route to go from Galilee all the way to Jerusalem. And so you can kind of imagine what's taking place here. Jesus is teaching. He's performing miracles. Crowds of people are gathering around him. And now these Jews are trying to make their journey to celebrate the Passover feast down in Jerusalem. And they're noticing a crowd of people who are gathering around this man. And so they did probably what we would do. We'd probably stop off and and look to see what the commotion is all about. And so by that time, there are thousands upon thousands of people gathered, and they all want something from Jesus. And we know from the other um, Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that the 12 disciples had just returned from a teaching mission. So Jesus is wanting to kind of debrief their time They are most likely exhausted at this time. Jesus is probably tired as he spent, you know, the last year ministering and and pouring himself out. And so verse 3 tells us that Jesus went up on the mountain with his disciples, and he probably did this in order to recharge. And they do this because they know that verse 5 is coming. The mountain of people are coming toward him. Let me just point out our first application point this morning. First application is to beware of the barrenness of a busy life. Beware of the barrenness of a busy life. I think verse 3 is so significant. I think verse 3 is so important for us to uh, imitate in our own lives. And the reason for that is because if you're human, which you are, your cup will run dry. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Because of our humanity and because if you're a follower of Jesus, You have a ministry, whether that's a ministry to your family or to your friendships or to your coworkers or people in your neighborhood or a ministry in the church, you are constantly pouring yourself out as a follower of Jesus. And so there will come a point in time in which the cup runs dry. And look, the question that we all have to answer is, what do you do when your cup runs dry? Like, what do you do when you are pouring yourself out, and you're trying to give, and you're trying to give, and yet there's nothing left in the tank. What do you do when it feels like the busyness of life becomes the primary tool that is shaping your soul? What do you do when you feel like you're on that that treadmill, the treadmill of life, where you're running, and you're running, and you're running, and you feel like it's just depleting your spiritual resources? You feel like your, your soul is shrinking. Look, do you have a plan for that, because a time is coming where the cup will run dry. Look, fathers and, and husbands, when you get home from work after a long day, maybe it's been a long week or a long season, and you're kind of pulling into the driveway, you turn off the car, and you're about to walk in the front door, 
and the reality hits you of like, I've got nothing left to give. I've got nothing left in the tank. What do you do in that moment? Wives, what do you do when you've been serving your family? Whatever that looks like. Mothers, if you're working out of the home or taking care of the kids, what do you do when like the thought of changing one more diaper or, or having another conversation at the heart level with one of your, your children just utterly exhausts you? Like, do you have a plan in those moments? Look, we're all going to face those moments in time in which we feel that level of exhaustion, the level of exhaustion that the disciples probably felt. And so let me just encourage you with three things this morning. Number one, that level of exhaustion, the cup running dry, is normal. Okay? If you're human, it will happen. Happened to the disciples. We noticed that Jesus oftentimes went alone uh, to pray. And so let's just maybe say this out loud. Like, let's not pretend like there are any super Christians in the room where you'll never become exhausted, okay? Because that is something that happens regularly in our lives because we have a real enemy and because we all have the ministry of pouring ourselves out. Number two, the second thing I want to encourage you with is you will be tempted to kind of want to fake it to make it in those moments. Like you'll be tempted just to kind of put on a mask, to put on a face, and almost like pretend that you're not running on empty. And, and look, that will lead you into a worse place if you pretend that the condition of your soul is not what it is. And so just be aware of that as well. And then the third thing I just want to encourage you with is to follow the example of the disciples here. That the disciples, they, they get alone with Jesus on this mountain because they were tired. They just poured themselves out with this teaching mission. And look, they, they watched Jesus do this. They thought to themselves, man, if the Son of God had to get away with the Father, how much more do we need to get alone with the Father and spend alone time with him? Look, the reality is, is that you cannot give what you have not received first from the Lord. That if you're trying to pour yourself out to your family, your friends, your ministries, there's nothing that you're going to pour out if you're not consistently receiving grace from God. Like your time alone with God must overflow into your ministry and into your relationships. I want to challenge our volunteers just for a moment. We have a lot of volunteers. You serve faithfully week in and week out. And whether you're serving in children's ministry and you're teaching or you're leading a small group or you're just holding babies, whether you're on the worship team and you're up here singing and leading, you're, playing, you're uh, on the tech team or your hospital, whatever ministry you're serving in, you cannot give what you are not first receiving from the Lord. And we want you to be the most healthy person as you serve and you pour yourself out. We want you to be serving from a position of fullness not a position of being empty. And so I want to challenge you to make sure that you are taking care of your own soul, that you have some sort of plan to grow the depth of your soul and your intimacy and your relationship with the Lord, to not allow the, the current that we swim in in our culture to get swept up in the busyness of life. Look, the greatest thing that you can do, if you're a spouse, if you're a parent, if you're a friend, if you're an employee, Whoever you are, the best thing that you can do is by spending time alone with God and making that your highest priority. Look, it's in that space that God just fills you with his grace. It's in those sweet moments of intimacy with God where you open up his word and you say, God, teach me today. 
God, fill me. Don't let me leave this place with my heart feeling cold as I go throughout my day. Meet me here. It's in those times, that time alone with him that you recharge. And look, here, here's, here's kind of the dirty secret. We know that, don't we? Like, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Like, I've, I've said this dozens of times from the pulpit, and the challenge is, is we just get swept up into this current of having a busy schedule. Like, the challenge is, is if we looked at most of our calendars and our schedules, what is taking precedent is not figuring out how to prioritize time alone with God, but what is taking precedent is all of these other things in our lives. And they might be good, but we're trying to figure out how to socialize with friends, how to work out, how to clean the house, how to fit in this meeting and this work thing. And those are good things, but look, they're not ultimates. They're not there to, to feed your soul. Time alone with God must shape your priorities in your calendar and your schedule. And look, we will plan, we will strategize, we will move mountains to fit in Johnny's basketball game or Johnny's soccer game, but are we putting forth the same effort in figuring out how to spend alone time with God? Like this has to be the priority if you're a follower of Jesus, because if you cut out verse three from this reality, I wonder what this passage would look like. And look, the reality is some of us are living our lives without verse three, and you might be running on empty, and you might be faking it to make it, and there might come a day in which you utterly collapse into something that you wish you would not have. And so I know I'm pressing here, but just this is out of love. I'm trying to encourage and challenge you. Do not skip out on feeding your soul what it needs the most. Allow this to shape everything else in your calendar. Beware the barrenness of a busy life. Second thing I want to point out this morning not just the setting of what's taking place, but also this opportunity that arises in verses 5 through 9. We see here in uh, the first couple of verses that Jesus and his disciples are resting. They are soul-caring. They are preparing for what's coming. In verse 5, it says that Jesus lifted up his eyes and he sees this crowd, right? He sees mountain of people coming his way. Now, it's interesting that according to the other Gospels, Jesus and his disciples got on a boat to leave the crowd, right? They traveled from the north part of the Sea of Galilee to the southwest part, and yet the crowd just followed them. They followed them almost three to four miles just to keep up with Jesus because they have needs. They have expectations. They have desires, something that they want from Jesus. And yet you look at verse 5 here, Jesus lifts up his eyes, and he sees the crowd of people, and he doesn't run. He doesn't complain he doesn't look to his disciples and like, oh, here comes the needy crowd again. They've got, they want something from me again. No, in fact, this phrase here, the lifting up your eyes and seeing the crowd, that should remind you of something that we've already seen. Remember chapter 4 with the, the story of the woman at the well where Jesus turned to his disciples and said, lift up your eyes and see the harvest around you, right? The people, that's the harvest. That's the ministry. So for Jesus here, this, this is not a problem to solve, but these people, this is a, a crowd of people to love. And so even for you this morning, you've got expectations from Jesus. You've got needs from Jesus. When you bring those before him, he's not looking at you thinking, oh, man, here's another inconvenience. You know, here's John Smith again, another, another need for him. 
No, no, no. Jesus lifts up his eyes. He sees them, and he begins to move into that area of your life that you need grace and that you need help. So I was going to title this section a problem, but I think it's an opportunity. I think Jesus here, this is an opportunity to love on these people, and yet the reality is, is you have probably around 25,000 people who are hungry, and they have no food. Nobody has any food. In fact, uh, the other four accounts, the other uh, three accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if you kind of put them all together and you kind of synchronize them, we learn that this is occurring in the evening time, so it's starting to get dark. This is also near the city of Bethsaida, which is where Philip was from. And so that makes sense why Jesus turns to Philip and says to ask him the question, where are we to buy bread? Okay, Philip probably has local knowledge because he's from that area. And yet, I love verse 6 because John is almost talking to us, the readers, and he's basically saying, hey guys, don't worry, Jesus has a plan. Jesus is not winging this thing. He knows exactly what he's doing. And then Philip responds and basically says, hey Jesus, I've been uh, punching the numbers in the back and uh, we have a problem here. Like, there's no way that we can feed everybody. This, This need is too big for us. This gap of our need and our resources is too large we're in trouble. And he starts talking about 200 denarii, which is about eight months' wage. He said, even if we spent all that money on bread, it wouldn't fill everybody up. Then Andrew comes, and he says, hey, we've got this boy, and he's got five loaves of barley bread, which barley bread was reserved for the poorest of the poor. Not very good bread. It probably uh, resembles our communion bread on Sundays, which we'll take in a moment. We've got this barley bread, and then we've got some fish. But then Andrew even says, what are these to the whole crowd? Like, look at this gap, Jesus. And I find it interesting that like, Jesus asked this question to Philip because he tested him. And I don't know, we're not really told if Philip passed the test. We're not really sure exactly what Jesus was looking for. I don't know if Jesus was looking for them to say, hey, we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I don't know if he was looking for them to say, you know, Jesus, we've got this huge need, but we've seen you do miracles before. You've got this. I don't know exactly what he was looking for, but let me just point out the fact that Jesus' question here is a source question. He's asking, where will this need be met? And yet Philip's response, and even Andrew's response, is a how much will this cost kind of response. That Philip and Andrew begin to highlight this enormous gap between the need and their resources. And I think that the test that Jesus has for them is, will my my disciples recognize that the most important thing is answering the who question, the source question, and not the how or the why? I think that's what Jesus is driving at. In fact, this application for us this morning, that the who is more important than the how or the why. Because look, this is what I know to be true When you find yourself in situations where you have this enormous gap between a need and your resources, we want to run to the how will I fix this or why is this happening, and we very rarely go to the who question first. We very rarely look at the source of who will meet this need, who is behind this trial, who will come through for us, and we run to how can we fix this. I don't know if you find yourself in a situation of life where you're in that gap. Maybe you're looking at your bank account and you're thinking, there's a gap here. 
Maybe you're looking at your energy level. You're trying to take care of aging parents, and you're like, how am I going to do this? Maybe you're thinking through the wisdom and the knowledge of trying to raise your kids, and you're like, there's a gap here. No idea what I'm doing. Look, let me encourage you. Don't run to the how or the why. Run to the who in those moments. Let me remind you that you have a God who is with you, who is for you, who promises never to leave you or forsake you. You have a God who lives inside of you by his spirit, who is giving you everything you need for life and godliness. And even as the Proverbs say, trust in the Lord. Don't lean on your own understanding. Like he promises to make your path straight. And sometimes we want to make our own path straight and then trust in him, then go to the who question. But if you notice throughout scriptures, he wants us to look at the who, trust in the Lord with all of your hearts. Lean not on your own understanding and he will make your paths straight. Think the who is more important than the how or the why. Well, I love how this story uh, plays out. Verse 9, there's a freak out moment for the disciples. Verse 9, they're thinking there's no way we can address the need of the hunger of thousands of people. And then verse 10, Jesus just very calmly, very confidently says, have the people sit down. Okay, this is the second of three things that Jesus says in this passage. And According to Mark 6, they have them sit down in groups of 50 or 100. And look, I don't, I don't know exactly what happens next, how this is unfolded, but Jesus just miraculously takes the bread. He gives thanks, which is probably a sermon in and of itself, right? Gives thanks, and then he starts distributing it and takes the fish, does the same thing. Like, I don't know if it just, like, comes out of nowhere, if the bread just never ends. I'm not sure how it all plays out, but the text says that everybody ate until they were full. In fact, they had leftovers. And I love verse 12 because Jesus says, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. And look, I, I love that. And I, I don't know if this is, you know, taking this verse out of context, but that really ministered to me because I'm thinking that's the heartbeat of God, that Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost. He's doing it with the bread and he's done it with all of us sinners, that he's not going to let anybody be lost, but he's going to leave the 99. He's going to seek out the one to draw them in here. We see kind of a little bit of the heart of God here. And I love this story because, you know, this passage, I know we've all heard it a million times, this passage tends to be highlighting Jesus's power, which it should. This miracle is unbelievable. But I think we also see his compassion for the crowd here, his kindness to a group of thousands of people who he knows will later leave him and betray him. But the other thing we learn about Jesus is his desire to use people who are willing to be used. Look, I think the second most important person in the story outside of Jesus, which is obvious, is this little boy. This little boy who is, in the culture of this time, is very insignificant, is inadequate. He probably was just there with his, with his family, nothing special, and yet he comes to them and he says, hey, I've, I've got some food. Could, could you use this? Like, I don't think the disciples went to all 20,000 and said, hey, do you have food? Do you have food? You? No. I think this boy came up to them, saw the dilemma, and said, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm available to be used here. I, I'm willing for you to use what I have and for you to maybe multiply this into meeting this need. And I just want to highlight this. Look, these are the kinds of people that God uses. It, it's people like this little boy who it seems like he's got nothing to offer and yet God takes what he gives him and performs one of the most powerful miracles in all of the Gospels. 
Look, let me just share with us application number three. I think God wants to use F-A-T people. Okay, I'm not saying fat from the pulpit, but um, F is faithful. He wants to use faithful, available, and teachable people. And I think this boy fits that description. This boy says, I'm faithful, I'm available, moldable. Take what I have and use it. Look, oftentimes when you look throughout Scripture, God typically does not use the most powerful, the most gifted, the ones with the most charisma or influence, but he uses the people who say, I'm available, I'm faithful, I'm teachable, I'm moldable, I'm humble. God, can you use me? I don't have a lot to offer. And those are the people that God especially enjoys using. Like, you know this when you trace scripture. Who does God tend to use? Look at Moses at the burning bush. You've got Moses who is a stuttering old man at the time. He's tending to his flock, offering really nothing to the Lord, nothing special, no, no uh, position of leadership. And yet the burning bush occurs and he makes Moses into the leader of his people. Look at Rahab the prostitute. Unbelievable character that God uses. Offers really nothing to him and yet uh, uses her to do an amazing work for the Israelites. Look at the 12 disciples. These were not the movers and shakers of society. These are a bunch of fishermen and tax collectors, barely educated. And all these people, you look at scripture, they all have the same thing in common. They were faithful, they were available, and they were teachable. What a challenge for us today. I just want that truth to sit in on whatever insecurity or weakness that is flaring up in your soul this morning. I got a letter a few weeks ago, and I have to read it to you. I got a letter from a uh, young girl in our congregation. Her name is Reese, and uh, they've been, uh, Reese and her parents, they've been coming to our church for um, several years. I think they were actually one of my first membership interviews that I did here. And she wrote this letter that just ministered to me so greatly, and I think it illustrates this point beautifully. Let me just read this to you. She says this. She says, Dear Pastor Chris, in parentheses, or who else is reading this? My name is Reese, and I've been waiting for a long time now to give money to the church. I just didn't have enough really to give anything, but I have finally saved up $100 to give to the church. I thought that maybe you could use the money to buy furniture or tables or speakers or maybe a projector, but feel free to use it however the church or you see fit. I hope that this will help. I was saved when I was seven years old, but when I was six years old is when we moved churches It was hard, but I knew this is what God wants us to do. Me and my parents prayed every night about the new church, and a few years had passed over, and to today, we love our church. For me, I feel like I can tell Miss Heidi anything. She is so nice, amazing, kind, respectful, magnificent. She puts everyone in front of herself. Every good word describes Miss Heidi. (laughs) Nailed her. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) She says, thank you for your time and attention. Sincerely, Reese. Now, I read that, and I immediately thought of three things. Number one, can I use this for Taco Bell? It's my first question. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Second thing I thought of was, yeah, she really described Miss Heidi very well. And then number three, I thought, what a great example of F-A-T. What a phenomenal example of a young girl in our church who is faithful, who's available, is teachable, and says, can you guys use this? You know, it may not be much, it's probably a lot to her, but she's like, can you use this money? Can you guys use this to expand the kingdom however you see fit? This is a, a, a young girl in our church who gets it. 
She understands what the Christian life is all about. It's not about our weaknesses. It's not about our insecurities. It's not about how little that we have. What's important is your responsibility to being faithful to whatever you are being called to give and offer to the Lord. So look, never, never underestimate what you have to offer God. I love um, Elizabeth Elliot. She's um, was the wife of Jim Elliot, great missionary. She said this. She said, nothing I have, nothing I am will be refused on the part of Christ. Amen to that. I simply give it to him as the little boy gave Jesus his five loaves and two fishes with the same feeling of the disciples when they said, what is the good of that for such a crowd? Naturally, in almost anything I offer to Christ, my reaction would be, what is the good of that? The point is, the use he makes of it is none of my business. It is his business. It is his blessing. So this grief, this loss, this suffering, this pain, whatever it is, which at the moment is God's means of testing my faith and bringing me to the recognition of who he is, that is the thing I can offer. Look, in those moments when you're unsure of, can I offer this to the Lord? Can he use me? That is a test of your own faith and your own trust. Because sometimes we elevate our insecurities above the power of God that he can use anyone and anything. I just want to encourage you, you may, you may feel like you've got nothing to offer God. Like you may feel like because of your failures and your weaknesses and your inadequacies that God can't use you. And yet what this passage teaches us and what all over Scripture teaches us is that if you have come to the end of yourself, God especially likes to use people like that. We have too many people in our church who are believing the lie that I'm not spiritual enough, I'm not gifted enough, I don't know enough, therefore I can't serve, therefore I can't lead, therefore I can't share the gospel, and that is a lie. Look, our awareness of our badness and our weakness seems to draw us closer to God than our assumption of our goodness and our strengths. Well, as we conclude this morning, there's one thing I want to point out that's left for us to talk about, and that is really the significance of this miracle. Remember in the beginning I said that this chapter is so very significant with Jesus' rise of popularity and then to just being really left to only 12 people. And I think the importance of that lies in understanding this miracle and what happens after he performed this miracle. That when you get to verses 13 through 15, we learn that the crowds are utterly enamored with Jesus. Like, they are all in for uh, crowning him as king. They believe he is the Messiah. They believe he is the promised one. This is the one who's going to overthrow the Roman op- oppression. And yet, what we find Jesus doing in verse 15 is that he withdrew again by himself to the mountain. Quite a feat when you've got thousands of people wanting to grab you by force. He just kind of disappears. And I think the significance lies in verse 14. See, verse 14 tells us that the people were trying to apply that messianic reference from Deuteronomy 18, where Moses promised the people that there's going to be coming a Messiah, a prophet greater than myself. And so the people here are taking that messianic reference and saying, this is he, this is that, that Messiah, but they were adding stuff onto it. They were saying, this is the Messiah who's going to take over the Romans, and, and look, we have to understand the context here because there is this messianic fever going on, that they're super uh, sensitive to uh, who could deliver us from Roman oppression because of the Passover. 
They're very much aware of, of what Moses did for the people of God, the deliverance from the Egyptian rule. And so during this time, they're thinking, could Jesus do that for the Romans? And then furthermore, Jesus performs the ultimate sign, if you were campaigning to become king, the ultimate sign here of creating bread and food out of nothing. And so they're ready to crown him as king, and yet what we see Jesus doing is that he withdraws and he disappears from them. He's going to come back on the scene in verse 22, but I think the reason why Jesus intentionally takes a crowd of 20, 30,000 people and intentionally dwindles it down to 12 is because Jesus is not interested in partial surrender. Jesus is not interested in people who are coming to him, and yet they still have an agenda, they still have areas of their lives in which they have not gone all in for God to have access to. And look, I think this is a warning for us today, that the crowd here, they were willing to follow Jesus if that meant Jesus would overthrow the Romans, but they were unwilling to fully surrender if this Jesus would get up on a cross and die. This is evidence of a partial surrender. And look, I think it's a warning for us this morning not to be like the crowds. The crowds, they saw this powerful sign. They saw this miracle. They loved the teachings of Jesus. They went three, four miles to follow Jesus wherever he went. And yet, they had areas of their lives in which they weren't fully surrendering to Jesus. And they will, in just a couple of verses, leave Jesus and depart from him. Look, what a warning for us who were around Jesus, we're at church on a Sunday, but the challenge is, do you have areas of your life in which you are still king and Jesus is not? Do you, do you have things in your life that you have not fully submitted to King Jesus? Is there sin in your life? Is there bitterness? Is there anger? Is there something that you are still holding on to? that you have not placed before King Jesus and you've said, take this. You're king, I'm not. Let me surrender everything to you. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the beauty of Jesus. We thank you for his great kindness. We thank you for his compassion. God, what a beautiful Savior we have who looks at the needs of thousands of people, knows they're going to leave him, and yet still feeds them. Oh God, we can identify with the crowd here in this passage where we want you, Jesus, and yet to fully surrender every area of our life is hard and it's a challenge. So God, I pray that you would continue to move in our midst this morning, bring conviction where that's needed. We want to be people who are all in for you, whatever that means, to follow you on your terms. Thank you for this passage. In Jesus' name, amen.